Good morning. It's good to be with you guys this morning. My name is Grady. I'm the pastor here at Maricopa Springs, and I want to wish you a happy Easter or happy Resurrection Sunday. Although I like to remind my church every year that every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, right? Because every Sunday we celebrate Jesus winning victory over death, which is a great thing. So he is risen. And see, I know that now, right? He is risen, he is risen indeed. I know that now as an adult, as a grown-up, if you will, that Easter is about Jesus rising from the dead. But as a kid, I don't think I really grasped that. I don't think I really got that. You know, as a kid, probably like most little kids, I believed that Easter was mostly about the Easter bunny, that weird, giant, friendly bunny who lays eggs and leaves you candy for some strange reason, And now that I'm older, it's kind of creepy to think about that, and it doesn't really make any sense at all either. There's this human-sized bunny, uh, and one day a year, he visits you in your sleep without being seen, checks in on you, and then drops an Easter basket in your room maybe, then runs all around your house or your backyard leaving these little pastel-colored eggs, which is just... Bizarre. And the most bizarre part is somehow parents are okay with this, right? Despite all their previous warnings, don't talk to strangers, look out for weirdos who wear suits and costumes. You know, for some reason, this time, they're, they're okay with it. Um, but yet, as a kid, you know, this was the strange world that I believed. This is the way that I saw the world. And you can't really blame me, right? First of all, because I was a kid, and as a kid, it's fun to... Uh, imagine things and, and get playful with your imagination. But two, number two, people believe all kinds of really weird things. Okay, maybe you've been on the internet and you've seen some of the crazy stuff people believe. I want to fill you in on a few of them, okay? Just a couple crazy things people believe. For starters, 30% of Americans, but of course nobody in this room, but 30% of Americans don't believe that the Pacific Ocean is actually shown on a map of the United States. I'm not sure where they think the Pacific Ocean is shown, but they fail to realize that that huge blue part to the left of California is an ocean that actually exists, okay? 30% of these people believe that the map is just colored blue for some strange coincidental reason. True story. And yet, don't go to the slide quite yet, don't go there quite yet, there are other geographically confused individuals. I remember meeting someone who told me this one time. They're confused. They know that the Pacific Ocean is off the coast of California. They just make the mistake of believing that the islands of Hawaii and Alaska are there as well. Now you can show the slide. Beyond that, yes, not an island. Some of you from Alaska know not an island. You've been there, right. Okay, beyond that, one in five people in America believe that aliens crash-landed in Roswell, New Mexico in 1947 and that the government has been somehow uh, managing to keep this under wraps, a secret, for 68 years. And my question to you would be, how can they do that if they can't even run the MVD, you know? (laughs) If they can't efficiently run that organization, why would we believe they can keep something a secret for 68 years? Okay, but thanks to the History Channel and their impeccably historic reporting, and this guy, many of these same people believe that aliens (laughs) visited our planet many years ago and helped build the pyramids, okay? 
Um, I don't, I've watched that show because I think it's interesting. I don't think scientifically that the evidence is really there, okay? Um, and yet another group of people, despite all of the evidence, sincerely believe that the earth is flat. Have you heard of these people? This is the Flat Earth Society. Contrary to what you may have been told in school, you probably learned that even up until the time of Columbus, people thought that the earth was flat. Okay, that's not true. If you learned that, that's false. The Greeks in 500 BC, 2,500 years ago, knew that the earth was round. Pythagoras came up with a mathematical equation to prove that the earth was round, okay? So for 2,500 years, humans have known that the earth is a sphere, but the Flat Earth Society sincerely denies it even to this day. They defend their position by asking this question, have you ever been to space to see for yourself that the earth is round? No, right? Nobody. Have you ever personally observed the spherical nature of the earth? I'm pretty sure that everybody in this room would have to say no, you haven't. You've only seen pictures, you've heard stories, maybe you watched movies. You've only experienced that the earth is round through secondhand witnesses or potentially indirect evidence. Personally, you've never experienced it. So their question, how can you possibly believe something you haven't personally observed? How can you prove something that is not scientifically observable through your own eyes, okay? And if you're persuaded by that argument, you can become an official friend of the Flatter Society through a $12 donation online, okay? But you and I know, you and I know that even though we haven't been to space and seen firsthand that the earth is round, there's a whole lot of really good evidence that the earth is a sphere, isn't there? Okay, but I haven't even mentioned the craziest thing that people believe yet. Here's the craziest. Just one more. Forget the Flat Earth Society. They got nothing on these people. The Easter Bunny, right? All the ancient aliens, they don't even come close to this, okay? There is a huge portion of our population that believes that once upon a time, there was a guy who was executed by the Romans, died on a cross, and then after being buried and dead for three days, they believe that he actually rose from the dead. He's risen indeed. Yeah, seriously, those people are out there. Some of them are even with us here this morning. <laughs> there are a whole bunch of crazy people who believe this story. They say that it's true, and they say that it factually and historically happened. They even get together on a special holiday called Easter, and they celebrate it. Not sure how the Easter bunny came in there, but they celebrate this guy who they believe rose from the dead. And it's kind of crazy, right? Now, there are other people who laugh at them, they make fun of them, they joke at them at their expense because they think that these believers have never actually seen Jesus. They've never seen him physically, personally risen from the dead. And so, how can they believe such a ridiculous and crazy story? These believers are guilty of taking the evidence that somebody else has presented to them without being able to factually verify it for themselves. And, you know, this evidence that was recorded in a book called the Bible, they just believe it. And isn't that silly? And even though most people would mock the Flat Earth Society for such a stupid argument against believing that the world is round, a whole bunch of people actually think that the very same argument makes a lot of sense when you point it at Christians. 
The Flat Earth Society says, you can't believe that the Earth is round because you've never seen its roundness with your own eyes, which is a pretty poor argument, I think. And yet atheists and so-called rational scientists say, you can't believe the Bible because it claims that Jesus rose from the dead and you've never seen Jesus with your own eyes. And for some reason, when the Flat Earth Society says it, we laugh at them. But when the empiricists, the atheists, the skeptics, and the doubters say it against Christians, a whole lot of people nod their heads and go, yeah, that makes a whole lot of sense. That's a great point. This proves that Jesus didn't rise from the dead because we can't prove it with our eyes. And my question would be, does it? Does that really disprove the resurrection? If we believe that the earth is round based on really convincing evidence, even though we've never seen it, is it really that crazy then that we would believe that the resurrection actually happened even though we haven't personally seen it? And we do believe the resurrection has happened. And the Bible gives us some really, really good evidence that it indeed happened. And there's a lot of evidence. I don't have time to go into all of it this morning, but if you're one of those people who would like the evidence Please come talk to me afterward. I will email you a very long list. But I'm just going to touch on a few. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you don't need to go there. I'll just summarize it for you. We, we have this list. So let me touch on a couple of these things. Okay? First of all, Jesus died just like the prophecies that the Jews had for hundreds of years said that he would do. He died according to those prophecies. He was good and dead and buried in a tomb protected by Roman guards. And Roman guards had a very specific job. And it was guard or die. If you did not do your job as a Roman guard, then you would be executed by the Roman leadership for failure to do your job. So they had a pretty high stake in keeping the body of Jesus in a tomb if that's where it stayed. Then Jesus stayed dead in that tomb for three whole days, which was long enough for him to look like an actor from that zombie show, The Walking Dead. Yet on the third day, the day that we call Easter, Jesus rose from the dead. He walked out of that tomb in the flesh, just like the prophecies of the Jews foretold that he would do. And after rising from the dead, he appeared first to Mary and then a guy named Peter, who testified about seeing Jesus. But since nobody in their right mind would believe the testimony of just one or maybe two witnesses, Jesus also appeared to all 12 of his disciples. 12 guys who once were pansies and then became very adamant supporters of the resurrection. They were all together at the same time in the same place and they saw Jesus. Twelve eyewitnesses of an event is pretty solid evidence. In a courtroom today, if you were to bring twelve eyewitnesses in and they all told the same story, you're almost guaranteed to win that case in court if the jury is fair and honest. But to make sure that there's no room for debate, Jesus then also appeared to a crowd of more than 500 people at the same time. So take five times as many people as are in this room right now, put them all in the same place at the same time, and Jesus appeared to all of them. That's some pretty solid evidence right there. But it didn't stop there. Jesus then went and showed himself alive again to a disciple named James and then to another large group of believers is what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And then just to cross his T's and dot his I's, Jesus then revealed himself to a guy named Saul. 
And Saul hated Jesus. And Saul's one ambition in life was to destroy the name of Jesus. Saul was on a mission to kill or imprison or defame every single person who said that they had seen Jesus alive, who believed this ridiculous story about his resurrection. Saul wanted the nonsense stopped. But do you know what happened to Saul? Saul met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. He saw Jesus risen from the dead. And he was so convinced by the encounter that he decided to give up his life's ambition to destroy Jesus and instead gave his life to Jesus and began proclaiming the name of Jesus to people who didn't believe. And to put this change in modern times, it would be sort of like a leader from ISIS who had killed Christians. Maybe take the example this last week even of uh, the tragedy in Kenya, I believe it was, right? It'd be like one of those people who are radically opposed to Christianity waking up one morning and saying, I've seen Jesus risen from the dead, and I'm so convinced that I want you, who are my fellow persecutors of Christians, to know and believe it, and I'm going to give up this life of killing Christians, and I am going to give my life to Jesus. Could you imagine if a leader in ISIS did something like that? How convinced would they have to be? What kind of evidence would it take for something like that to happen? Some really good evidence, no doubt. And the Bible tells us that we have just this kind of evidence. Testimony from people who saw Jesus alive and whose lives were radically changed by seeing him risen from the dead. And again, if you want more of that evidence, come see me after the service. But you know what I've discovered about evidence and scientific proofs and facts and things like that? I've discovered that understanding truth is often not a decision that we make with our minds. It's a decision that we make with our hearts. There are lots of things that we believe about the world contrary to evidence because we feel them in our heart. And there's a story in the Bible along these lines. It's found in John chapter 11. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one this morning when the service is over. But Jesus gets a word, the story goes like this, Jesus gets word that a friend of his from a nearby village has fallen sick, and he's asked to come and use his miraculous power to heal people to make this man well again. But Jesus is engaged in other activities, and so he refuses to do what he's asked, and two days later, his friend named Lazarus dies. And at that point, at that point, Jesus then decides to go and see Lazarus and his family after Lazarus has passed away. And he goes to comfort the family and mourn with them and also to reveal his amazing power. And he journeys to a city named Bethany and when he arrives, the sister of Lazarus, his friend, comes running to meet him. Martha is her name. Let me read a couple verses to you starting in John chapter 11, verse 20. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. 
So with tears in her eyes, Martha runs to meet Jesus and she says to him, just broken, Lord, if you had been here when Lazarus was sick, my brother, he wouldn't have died if you had been here. But I think her statement is more of a question, really. Jesus, why didn't you come when we called you? What could possibly have kept you away from Lazarus, your friend who was dying? We desperately needed you, and you didn't come. And if you had been here, you could have prevented this terrible thing. Why didn't you come? And with a slight acknowledgement to what she's witnessed firsthand, Martha tries to muster a little bit of belief. See, in her mind, she knows that there's plenty of evidence that Jesus is someone powerful, the Son of God, the Christ. In her mind, she knows it because she's seen Jesus do some truly incredible things. She's seen him do miracles, heal sick people, make Uh, lame people, physically well again. She's seen him be master over biology and physics and chemistry, lord of the winds and the waters. But her heart is so broken that she doubts. And she can only see in this moment that her brother is dead. And so she says, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. As if to say, Jesus, I know that you're something great. And if only you had been here to ask God to heal Lazarus, he would have lived. And that's why I called you, because I knew that you could do this thing, that you could ask God and make him well. And if you had done so, it would have been so. But you missed the opportunity, Jesus. And Jesus says something really amazing in reply. He says, your brother will rise again. He is dead now, Martha, but he will live. And yet to Martha, this reply feels like the silly things that people say at funerals. If you've lost a loved one at any point in your life, you know that sometimes because people feel self-conscious, they say silly things at the loss of a loved one to try and make you feel better. And she knows that Jesus is telling her something that's true, but it just feels irrelevant for the situation at hand. Remember, she has this broken heart because her brother has just died. But she does the polite thing. And she responds to Jesus by saying, yeah, Jesus, thanks for the, for the comfy platitudes. I, I believe that he will rise again on the last day, the resurrection. And then Jesus reveals for all of us something deep and profound. See, most people have a view of death a lot like Martha. They have this vague impression that death is not the end. They have a nagging sense that life is not over when you die. There is something more. And in her grief, Martha is grasping for something to hold on to. Today, people say things like this. I know he's dead, but he's in a better place. I know that I lost her, but she's watching over me. I know he's gone, but he's always with me in my heart. And the problem with these things is that they're they're very vague. They're unfounded. They're ideas of death that are not based on anything substantive or solid. They come about because of a lack of any concrete understanding of what it means to die. And they're born out of this human condition of fear and ignorance about death. But Jesus, he does not accept her vague impressions 
her attempt to hope for something good in the midst of her heartache. He speaks and pierces right to the middle of that. And he gives her the greatest hope that mankind has ever been offered. He tells her something absolutely true and concrete about life after death. He offers her broken heart the evidence that it needs. And he testifies to something amazing. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, believe, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says that he is master over death. He is the resurrection and the life. He and death went toe-to-toe in the greatest heavyweight boxing match that ever was. And Jesus clobbered death. He has domesticated death, shaved off its claws, filed down its teeth, silenced its bark, and struck fear into the very heart of death itself, is what he says. And anyone who believes in him will live, and anyone who trusts in him will share in that victory. But what does that mean exactly? What does that mean precisely? Because everyone still dies, so what did Jesus mean? Timothy Keller uses the story of Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse to shed some light on what Jesus meant. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for many years, and he lost his wife when his daughter was still a very young child. And Dr. Barnhouse was trying to figure out how to help his little girl and even himself process the loss of their wife and his mother. And so once when they were driving, a huge moving van passed them. And as it passed, the shadow of the truck fell on the car where he and his daughter were sitting. And so Dr. Barnhouse had a thought. And he said something like this to his daughter. Would you rather be run over by a truck or by its shadow? And his daughter replied, by the shadow, of course, Dad. That can't hurt at all. And Dr. Barnhouse replied, right, If the truck doesn't hit you, but only its shadow, then you're fine. Well, it was only the shadow of death that went over your mother. She's actually alive, more alive even than we are. And that's because 2,000 years ago, he said, the real truck of death hit Jesus full on. And because death crushed, crushed Jesus, and we believe in him, now the only thing that can come over us is the shadow of death. And the shadow of death is nothing more than the entrance into glory. And we will all die. But death does not have the last word. Because Jesus himself is the resurrection, and everyone who believes in him will be raised to life and will never be overcome by death in the end. And see, the penalty for the sins that you have committed is death. And that's why you must die. That's why I must die. And every person who has ever lived on this earth must pay that penalty for sin through death. But Jesus makes a promise in these verses in John chapter 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Jesus, on the cross, took upon himself the penalty for your sins. He took the truck, the semi-truck of death, full force for you to cover your sins. And on Easter Sunday after his death, three days later, he did the impossible 
the incredible. He rose from the dead. And he did it all to save you from your sins so that you could live eternally with him. And because he loves you, because he loves me, because he loves us, he did this for us. And we face only the shadow of death, which is really just our entrance into heaven. Now my guess is, if you're here, you, you already know this story. You've probably already heard it. I have a hard time believing there's anyone in this room who doesn't know that Jesus rose from the dead, okay? But the question that Jesus asks Martha in John 11 is not, do you know this? The question he asks is much more personal. Jesus says to her, Martha, do you believe this? And that's the same question I want to ask you this morning. Do you believe this? Or maybe more importantly, will you believe this, please? I mean, why, why are you even here this morning? Why did you come to church on Easter Sunday? Was it for free pancakes or for the Easter bunny? Was it maybe to appease your family, your spouse, so they'd stop nagging you? Was it because you thought it would be good for your kids and an excuse to get out of the house for the morning? Maybe it was because that's just what you do on Easter, right? You go to church. Every good person knows that. You may think that it's one of these things. You may think that's why you're in this room here this morning, but I believe that you are here because God brought you here this morning to ask you this question, not to give you information, but to personally ask you this question. Do you believe, will you believe that Jesus rose from the dead for your sins? I think that Jesus wants you to hear him ask you this morning, will you believe in me? Will you believe in him for the forgiveness of your sins? Will you believe in him to give you eternal life? See, being a Christian is not about being a good person. It's not about going to church. It's not about cleaning up your act. It's not about being more good than your neighbor next door so that you get a little bit further ahead in the line than them. At the very heart of Christianity is this simple question that Jesus wants to ask you. Do you believe this? Now I can say it's rational. There's plenty of proof. I'll give it to you. It makes sense. But more importantly, will you believe in your heart? Will you believe in the Jesus who loves you, who gave his life to save you? Will you allow him to wash over you the forgiveness of your sins? Will you believe in him for salvation? Do you believe this? You might be the rationalist, only capable of receiving or believing if it's in line with human reasoning. You might be the relativist, who lives with the inconsistency of what might be true for you isn't necessarily true for me. Or maybe you're religious and believe that your own self-righteous deeds removes any salvific need. Maybe you're the reservationist, who refuses to believe the truth even though there's eyewitness testimony as proof. Or maybe you're just resentful and maintain a posture that's outright hostile towards the gospel. But me, I'm a realist. And this is the reality. We are guilty, all of humanity, that in the court of our creator, all creation stands, contempt, convicted, and condemned with unclean hands. With the evidence presented against us, every word, every deed, every thought, we're caught red-handed every blemish and every spot. But we make light the issue of sin. I mean, we know it exists, but 
we dismiss it as a simple infraction with a slap on the wrist or treat it like a violation of a traffic regulation. But we never see sin as a serious allegation, never understanding the weight of its impact or the fact that it's a clear breach of contract, that there's consequences to a broken covenant, law, judgment, punishment. And the consequences of sin is death, and it's what we should rightfully get, even though we fail to admit the various crimes that we commit. But God met our guilt with His grace and sent His Son as a substitute to serve the sentence in our place. And so He, being perfect and pure, took on the penalty and paid the cost by purchasing our pardon and taking our sin to the cross. And even though we owed it, He received the death sentence so that we might be acquitted by way of acceptance and repentance. And rather than rightfully receiving retribution, we might through Christ receive righteousness, regeneration, redemption, and restitution. And because Christ not only died, but was raised from the grave, we have evidence of a Redeemer that's mighty to save. So whether it's reason, religion, reservation, or resentment, cling to the cross with a heart that's broken and repentant. Because on the day of judgment, there will be no defense attorney. You will be held accountable, and there will be no hung jury. So pray the Lord count you as righteous. Not because of anything that you've done. Not because of righteousness in your own life, but because of His Son. Because He is the one who by His risen life justifies. So repent and believe. Because the reality is, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.